We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ's likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation this morning. So we continue on with our series in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning, verses 9 down to verse 20. So let us read this section together. This is John, the apostle. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, we ask now as we look at your word together and study it, we pray, Lord, that you would give us insight. And not just for the sake of understanding, but Lord, help us to see Christ more clearly. We might understand who he is, and in light of that understanding, Lord, see ourselves being transformed and changed by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Fear is a funny thing, isn't it? Now, maybe you experienced that just a second ago. I'm not sure. (laughs) Just a glimpse of it. But the scariest experiences are always surprises. Have you noticed that? The ones that really get your blood going. Those are usually the ones that happen during movies 
So you're watching a movie and then there's a jump scene and then because you're surprised, like you get this really fast rush of adrenaline. Maybe you're not like me, but this happened to me earlier this week as I was listening. This is so sad. Shaming, actually. Listening to an audiobook, and my air conditioner kicked on. Now, it was kind of a scary audiobook, you know? And the air conditioner kicked on and I jumped and I thought, oh, I cannot share that with anyone. And now I've just shared it with you, but... Several years ago, I was uh, really into photography at the time, and, and I was traveling home from a, a meeting that I had to go to, and I was traveling across this very long bridge over Mark Twain Lake. And if you've never been to Missouri, it's just a very large lake, and there's several bridges that kind of span these large bodies of water that, uh, that are contained within the lake. But as I was traveling across it, I'd had my camera with me, and, and I, uh, I decided that I would stop and take a picture because it was just absolutely beautiful. The scenery was just incredible. The sky was beautiful. And so I pulled off to the side on the bridge. There's plenty of wide shoulder room uh, and uh, parked the truck. And then, I mean, it's, the road stretches out for as long as you can see. I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a good amount of space out here. So I, I parked the truck, walked across the road and, and was on the other side of the road. And, uh, and I began to kind of take pictures. I mean, it was just beautiful. And then I heard something behind me that was just really strange. And it sounded like, you know, that, that crunching sound that happens when your tires begin to kind of roll over small pebbles and gravel. And so I immediately looked behind me, and sure enough, my truck, apparently I'd forgotten to put it in park, or I'd forgotten to put the parking brake on. Uh, and it was just rolling backwards out into, out into the highway. And I thought, oh my goodness. But then... To make it all even more terrible, I looked, and right at that moment, a semi-truck crested the hill and was coming extremely fast. And it's that moment when, like, your, your heart just, like, sinks, right? And I, I knew at that moment, you know, everything slows down when you're in those kinds of experiences. And I had three choices. Number one, I could just jump over the bridge. It's not that far of a drop. There's water there. Jump over the bridge and just let the trucker sort it out, however he sees fit. Or I could just curl up in a ball and sit down next to the, the barrier wall. But I thought, well, the truck's between me and the semi-truck. There's a good chance that I'll be like a pancake at the end of that experience. The last choice was to run as fast as I could to try and get to the truck, to try and stop it. So I chose the last one. I dropped my camera on the concrete and ran as fast as my legs could carry me all the way to the truck. And I got to the truck, and about that time, I'm, I'm seeing in the, in the peripheral vision, the truck is just bearing down. I'm fumbling with the door trying to open it. It's still moving, so I'm trying to move with it. I open the door, and I don't have time to jump in the seat and push down on the pedal. And so I just dive into the floorboard, pushing down as hard as I can onto the, the pedal that's in the floor. And it's at that moment that that semi-trunk careens to the left and screams by me. And I'm inches, I could do not, inches away from the wheels of that semi-truck. So the truck stopped. I climb up into the, the cab of the truck. My hands are shaking. And I, I take the key and I turn the ignition on. And I pull the truck over to the side of the road, under the shoulder. And I intentionally put on the parking brake and turn the ignition off and just sit there for a little while. When you experience something like that, it gives you perspective 
Because at that moment, I began to think about all of the things. Caden had just been born. I had finally made it back from Iraq. And I'm thinking, all of the things that I would have just lost in that moment. And you begin to reflect upon your life, beginning to reflect upon what's most important. Fear can consume your life. It can consume your life or it can give you a better perspective on your life. What we find here in the text this morning is John the Apostle, he, he sees Jesus in a way that he had never, ever seen Jesus before and he falls down like a dead person. He's fearful of seeing Jesus this way. Why? Because Jesus is God over all. And he knows that if you see God, if you see God, then you are certainly going to die. Consumed by fire, consumed by glory. We see this all over the the Old Testament. He has this heart-stopping vision of Jesus. And the awe he experiences quickly turns to fear and dread because of the threat of certain death. But Jesus, what is so beautiful about this passage is that Jesus anticipates this. Doesn't. He reaches down to John and he grabs him by the shoulder and he says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This morning, I want us to see how trusting Jesus with all of our lives is the only thing that really makes sense. And hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll take steps together toward living lives devoted to our King. And free from fear, free from worry, free from anxiety. So there's three actions that I want us to take from this passage this morning. The first is that we must endure. We must endure. This is what the entire book of Revelation seems to be about. As we are seeing that God will finally be victorious. But he's calling us to be people who endure all the way to the end. But also as we see this unique picture of Christ. We know that it's important that we understand who Jesus is more clearly than we have before in the past. And also that we ought to do what it is that Jesus has told us to do. So let's look at the first of these. Endure to the end. It's a call to you. It's a call to me. Endure to the end. Now look at verse 9 with me again. We go back through the text. John says, you're... I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. As we look at this text, just this section and then the following sections, we're going to outline it this way this morning, 9 through 11, we see this really this union of tribulation, of kingdom, of endurance, and then John is called by Jesus to do something specific, to write and to send what it is he has seen to the churches. Verses 12 through 16, he shows us this incredible picture of the Son of Man, and then 17 through 20, Jesus commands John... Not to be afraid, but to testify to what it is that he has seen. And so in this first section, John is identifying himself as our brother. He's identifying himself as our partner. We are blood brothers. Blood because of Jesus Christ's blood. We are brothers together in one family. 
And, and John is writing this, and he says to his first readers, we are brothers, we are partners, but he's saying the same thing to you and me even thousands of years now later. He says that we are partners. This is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7 when he says that we are partakers together. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We are together in this. So John's not some aloof apostle who has really no connection to the churches. He's saying, no, this is for us. These are the words that we need to hear if we're going to endure all the way to the end. This is what we need to hear. And he says that he was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We don't know exactly what the context is for this or for why he was sent to Patmos. Now, Patmos was a, a small island in the Aegean Sea about 40 miles west of the, um, of the coast of Asia Minor. It's about 65 miles from Ephesus. And the tradition says that, that, that Patmos was an island prison, and, and the prisoners, the inmates that worked there, they were working in stone quarries for the Roman Empire. And so if people did things that were disruptive to the Roman rule, they would send them off to Patmos to work in, in the labor camps there. And so apparently this is, this is John, his experience, but it's, a, it's the Lord's day, and he has this vision. Now I want you to notice what John says that we're partners with him in. He says that we are partners, number one, in tribulation, and then kingdom, and then endurance in Jesus, he said. Now, in the original language, there is not, there's only one the, the definite article. There's only one the. And the fact that there's only one definite article tells us that all of these ideas are uniquely tied together. They're not independent from one another. They are all uniquely tied together. So we cannot experience the kingdom rule of Christ in our lives without experiencing tribulation and endurance. Those things are all tied together. Experiencing the rule of Christ begins with tribulation and it continues only as we faithfully endure ongoing tribulation in life. So the formula for kingship really is that faithful endurance through tribulation is the way that we reign with Christ in the present. We're not just subjects of the kingdom. He says we are actively engaged in this kingdom. We are participants in this kingdom. We are enduring suffering, but also through that suffering, we are reigning with Christ even now in his kingdom. Jesus is training us even now in every situation that we have in our lives. Fearless Christianity, we must live lives that include suffering. Kingdom faithfulness and even endurance to the end. Now, whenever you're looking at Scripture, it's always, always important to notice the dialogue. If you're reading a narrative passage, the dialogue is extremely important because it tells us what, is, what, the, what the author wants you to really take away from this text, what he really wants you to take and hold on to. And it's the dialogue. What's being said really matters. Look what Jesus commands. He says to John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So we see a couple of different things here in this section. John is to, first of all, he's to see, right? He can't write down anything before he's seen it. So he, he's to look and see. 
He's seeing what Jesus is revealing to him. He, he's to visually recognize what is taking place. He's to believe what he is seeing. And second, all of the things that he is seeing, all of the things that he is believing, he's to write those things down. He's to prepare an account, not just for himself, but for the church at large. For these seven churches in particular, but for the universal church of God. And third, he is commissioned by Jesus to send that message to the churches. He's to testify to the things that he has seen. Friends, isn't that similar to the things that we've been told by Christ? Very similar, isn't it? God calls us to faith. He calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins, to believe in the gospel. He calls us as a church, we've talked about this over the last several weeks, to, to, to prepare ourselves, even through that series about being ministers together. We're to be ambassadors, we're to be fellow ministers, equipping one another for ministry, so that we can give an account to anyone who needs to hear. God has commissioned us, each of us, not just clergy, not just deacons. He's commissioned all of us to speak and to testify to the things that we have believed. We see this most obviously in the Great Commission. This is the calling that we've received. The cross, the resurrection of Christ, all of this, what we discover is that all of that has begun the end of day. So over and over in the New Testament, we hear that we're living in the last days, days filled with tribulation, days that, that there will be an increasing amount of tribulation. And so we ought to, as believers in Jesus Christ, endure this suffering well with a kingdom perspective. It means that we have to follow John's example. It means that we have to, we have to see the things that God is trying to instruct us upon, we have to prepare ourselves, we have to begin to, to, to equip ourselves so that we can share the message of Christ, and we have to testify. We have to testify. We have to testify. Are you with me? To the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard. This morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, if you've never followed Christ, you will not be able to endure to the end. You cannot. The hope that you have will not sustain you when you lose it all. When you lose those relationships that are so very dear to you, when you lose the possessions that you've accumulated, that you, you lose the occupation that, that you have kind of created an identity around, when you lose all of these temporal things, the hope that you have will not be able to extend beyond death and Hades. It's like chasing after smoke. You have to turn to Christ for hope, a hope that endures. Those of you here this morning and your believers, you will suffer. All of us will. And suffering is never easy, but our hope is not in the temporary stage of life that we find ourselves right now. Our hope is rooted in something far greater. We have good and precious promises. Jesus has told us, even in this revelation, to the one who conquers, I will give a kingdom. There will be a crown. There will be a, a tree of life. There's hope that extends way beyond 
the years that we have on this planet. Friends, you are called to endure to the end. And the only way that you can do that is if you see Jesus rightly. Look at the second action that I want us to take with us. Seeing Jesus rightly. Look at the passage again. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice. I think it's interesting that he says he's turning to see the voice, anticipating that there's not going to be anyone there. Because it's God speaking, and God is invisible. But it turns out that the incarnate Son is standing there before him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And the symbols that John sees in the vision are not what Jesus looks like. Sometimes I think we get a little bit confused about that. Not what Jesus looks like, but what Jesus is like. You see the difference? Dennis Johnson, a, a scholar, he says that Jesus is the searcher of hearts full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not what they look to the physical eye. They show us the reality of how things are, not so much what they look like with our physical eye. And Jesus tells us at the end of this passage that the lampstands symbolize the churches. And so seven of them, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, seven of them, not just to these particular churches in Asia Minor, but to the church in general, to the universal church. And his voice, as mentioned before, sounds like a trumpet, sounds like a shofar, which we heard just a few minutes ago. But all of what we're seeing here is just layer upon layer upon layer of Old Testament imagery. When Moses ascended to Mount Sinai to, to speak with Yahweh, to receive the commandments and the covenant, in Exodus 19 it says that the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And so John, he's, he's turned, he's seen this vision of Christ, and he is shocked to the core. There Jesus is, standing among his churches, Standing there in the midst of his churches, and he's engaged, he's observing, he's supporting, he's loving, and he wears a robe that, that reaches down to his feet, and there's a sash like the ancient priest in the tabernacle used to wear. These were the kinds of garments that the priests used to wear. In Exodus chapter 28, it says they would wear a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a coat of checkerwork, a turban and a sash. His, his floor-length robe resembles the angelic scribe that Ezekiel describes in his vision. This one coming from the divine, speaking with a message from God. So right in front of John is this one who is, he's fit, this one, to stand in God's presence, to protect the righteous, 
The Son of Man, he has this golden sash, he has flaming eyes, he has glowing feet and radiant face, all of it reflecting the splendor of the Son of Man who is to rule over the kingdom of the Ancient of Days. John also says that this man has a head that has white hair on it, like snow. This is an allusion to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. And the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days. It says in Daniel 7, 9, it says, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. He goes on in verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him now I want you to see how all of these symbols work together so we see that there's so much tying this image of Jesus together from the Old Testament what we what do we take away from this Is it necessarily that Jesus in physical form has a sword protruding from his mouth no no there's something really important about what it's saying about who he is and his character and his, his nature. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus, he is Emmanuel. You remember what the Old Testament, it says that he is Emmanuel. It gives him this name. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He's God with us. What is he doing? As he looks at this vision of Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's standing in the middle of the lampstands. He's standing here with us this morning. He's among us. He is eminent. He's together with us. He's supporting us. He knows us. He sustains us. He guides us. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. But we also see as he has the sash and the robe, he is our high priest. John the Baptist said that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the book of Hebrews unpacks that not only was Jesus the sacrifice, but he was the one who made the sacrifice. He was the priest. He is the one and only mediator between God and man. We come to Him. And only because of Him we are ushered into the presence of Almighty God. He is a high priest. He is the Ancient of Days even. We see His hair is like wool. Jesus is not a little God. He's not a demigod. He shares the same nature as the Father and the Spirit. He is one with the Ancient of Days. Jesus is God. Paul put it this way. He says in Colossians 1, he says, In Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is also all-knowing. We see this in his eyes. The consuming Fire, the torches of fire in his eyes show us that he is that all-consuming God of the Old Testament. That he knows all, of, that, that, the, that the Trinity knows he is God. He is aware. He sees. He perceives everything. His feet are made of bronze. His feet are not made of clay. They're not made even of flesh. He's saying that his, his feet, his foundation is the most Firm. He can be relied upon. That's exactly what we know about Jesus, is that he is reliable, and he will not be moved. And his word is the word of the Almighty. John says that his voice sounded like many waters, like a torrent, water, like a waterfall. 
like Niagara. And one thing that we know, if you've ever stood next to a large waterfall, is that the sounds or even the voices of people that you're trying to communicate with, they become very much indistinguishable. Because the, the sound, the massiveness of the sound of the water that is falling, you can't really hear or make out anything else. And that is what he's saying about the word of Christ. That Jesus, in his power and in his might, drowns out the world for his church so that we might hear him, so that we might know him. And even as the old song says, and all these other things, they just fade away when you turn your eyes upon Jesus. Says he sustains his church. Remember what it said? He said, the stars in his hands. I'm reminded even when I look at that, that section, when Jesus says in John chapter 10, that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he says, I and the Father are one. He holds the stars in his hand. Now, who are the stars? Jesus kind of lets us in on the secret at the very end. He says that the stars of the angels of the churches. Now, there's a couple of different views. I don't want to belabor the point, but people have thought maybe the stars were the couriers that were taking the messages to the churches, but that doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense because the, the, the letters were addressed to the churches, not just to the couriers of the message to the churches. Uh, other people have said that maybe it was the pastors or the elders of these churches, and they're the angels. But that, that again, is really not that helpful because, because that would mean John is using the word angelos, in one letter to refer to different things without explaining it. And that also is very unlikely. And so it seems like he's actually talking about angels, angels that seem to be tied to one particular local body that are guarding, that are taking care. So there seems to be some sort of connection with the angelic, but also with the church itself. What we do know is that the stars are deeply intertwined with the church. Stars and lampstands both speak of the church as reflecting the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The lampstands seem to indicate the presence of Christ. The stars seem to indicate some sort of protective possessiveness of Christ on his church. But what we know is that he is sustaining his church. He's guarding his church. And then the last one I want you to see is that he is the judge over all. He's the judge over all. That old creed, the Apostles' Creed, says that Jesus, after he died and was raised, he ascended into the heavens where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is who Jesus is. All those who reject him and choose to live their life in a way that suits them, without any concern for God, will be consumed by the judgment of God in his word. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of this, this judging word of God. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is Jesus. This is what John is trying to get across to. Jesus really is the king over all. He really is the Lord over all. This is the Jesus that we worship. Now, most of us have heard of Jesus before, and even if you're not a follower of Christ yet, 
You've probably heard of Jesus. But oftentimes, we have this weird kind of experience in culture where we've associated Jesus with various B-rated films that have been made of him. And Jesus ends up looking effeminate. Jesus looks, up, looks like somebody that shouldn't be a king. That's not somebody that you can really worship. That's not somebody that seems strong and mighty, but someone who seems flexible and easy to get along with. And submitting to that kind of Jesus seems uncomfortable sometimes. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is very different. The Jesus of the Bible is a divine warrior king. He is merciful to those who will submit to him. He, he is also one who will judge and he will crush those who reject him as king. He is the king over all other kings. So you look through history, Genghis Khan or Saladin or Richard the Lionheart or Adolf Hitler or Kim Jong-un or, or even Donald Trump, all of these will crumble in the presence of Christ. So the question you have to ask yourself today is, will you submit to him now and receive mercy? Or will you wait? Wait until your knees must be broken so that you will bow before the king of glory. But the reality is you will bow. Jesus is the king. He's the king that demands from all of us, even here this morning as we gather together, he demands our allegiance over any allegiance that we have with a flag, any allegiance that we have with a political platform or, or an ideological heritage or, or a news channel or culture or ethnicity, he demands our allegiance over all of these things because he is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one to whom we owe all of our lives. Every single minute belongs to him. So friends, what would it look like then in your life? How would your life change if you trusted Jesus, this Jesus, for everything? Instead of giving yourself to worry, to anxiety, to fear. How would we respond as a church to this kind of Jesus? I would hope we would lift him high. We would humble ourselves low, that with every ministry, every opportunity, every service, every prayer meeting, every time we get up and preach the Bible, that Jesus Christ would be raised high and that we would be brought low. Friends, we must endure to the end, and the only way that we will ever endure to the end is if we see Jesus for who he is, that he is king over all. And if we see Jesus rightly, we will be able then to obey his commands. Look at the last action that I want you to consider this morning. Do what you're told. Do what you're told. Verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, those that, are, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Friends, fearless Christian living means embracing Jesus' authority and bearing witness to what he has said. Not just being silent. Think about the relationship here. Jesus and John were best friends. I was thinking about that earlier and the fox and the hound jumped in my head. The best of friends. But they're best friends. They know each other better than anybody else. They did everything together. They ate together. They slept in the same room together. They traveled together. And yet here in this moment, John is seeing Jesus in a way that he had never seen him before. Never. Even when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up onto the top of a mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them, does the text say that any of them fell over as though they were dead? No. He's seeing something totally different. And he responds in the same fashion that every single prophet has responded. He falls down like a dead man. He passes out because he's scared. To see God, that's to die. But Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. It's almost like you can almost hear in his voice, don't be afraid, it's me, John. As he grabs him by the shoulder. Friends, we fear so many things, don't we? Now, maybe you think fear is too strong of a word. Maybe you're like a man's man, and maybe you're just concerned about a whole number of things, right? You're anxious. Maybe you're worried about certain things. But, but fear, so often, it controls our lives. We fear messing up relationships. We, we fear our, our children growing up. Or sometimes we fear that they're not going to grow up. You know what, you, you know what that means. We, we fear that we won't get into the right schools. We, we fear that uh, we won't have what it takes to succeed, whether it's at our job or, or in our education. We fear that, that people will find out who we really are. And that scares us. We fear that that uh, we're wasting our lives doing the things that we're doing. We, we fear that we'll wake up one day and we'll regret the things that we've done in our life, the choices that we've made in our life. We fear commitment because we know that's going to take time away from the things that we want to do. We fear not being able to, to provide enough for our families. We, we fear disappointing our spouses. We, we fear our children growing up and turning away from the faith. We, we fear that one day we'll be all alone in our life and there'll be no one to care for us. Some of us, we fear going into a nursing home. We fear vulnerability, but at the same time, we fear not having any close friends. In the end, we fear death and all that leads up to that. The climax of fear is death. Death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you live in a trailer doesn't matter if you live in a $5 million mansion. Death comes to everybody. It's the great equalizer. And death is really this climactic chaos that we understand we can't control every single thing in our lives. And, and fear is, is symptomatic of that uncontrollable, cursed world that we live in, that brokenness. And Jesus says that we don't have to fear that anymore. We don't have to fear the death. We don't have to fear chaos. Why? Because he's overcome it. That's why. So we don't have to fear illness anymore. Why? 
Because Jesus has the power to heal. Jesus has the power to restore. And even if he chooses not to, he has the power to raise the dead. We don't have to fear people finding out who we are. Why? Because Jesus has the power to change us, to make us different, to transform us, and to make us righteous people. We don't have to fear disappointing our spouses. Why? Because he has the ability to shape us into his image, to make us faithful, to make us wise, to make us loving. We don't have to fear providing for our families. Why? Because he's the king over everything. He will provide all of our needs. He will restore all that is lost. Everything that we need. All of this fear points back to the fear of death. The answer to all of this fear, regardless of what it is, the answer to it is found in a resurrected Christ. Death is that final point of life that we have no control over. All of the chaos, all of the pain that preludes death, they're all just symptoms of the brokenness of our world telling us that we cannot fix it. But in this passage, Jesus says, he's the one who can. He's the one who can. Because of the resurrection, he has been given authority over death and Hades. He's been given a key. He's been given authority over death and Hades. Death itself, he will completely eradicate. Hades is standing in for this concept of the place of the dead or those who have died. All those who have died are under his power and control and his dominion. He is the one who reigns now over all of it. So, we are to live fearless lives because he lives. You get it? We don't have to be scared of anything anymore. We don't have to live timidly. We don't have to live in fear because Jesus is alive. And that perspective change, that's important for us. Remember what we talked about earlier? God calls us to faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins, to believe the gospel. God calls us to prepare ourselves so that we might be ready, equipped to do the ministry, to give an account. He's commissioned us so that we might testify to the truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Just think about this. This point is really novel, isn't it? Just do what you're told, you, right? How many of as a parent, have said that? Just do what you're told. It's novel. But God, all throughout human history, He gives commands. He speaks. And then we don't do what we're supposed to do. Right? Starts in the garden. Our parents, Adam and Eve, begin eating from a tree that they're not supposed to eat from. God had told them not to. And now He tells us to testify to the gospel. To be a witness, to be an ambassador, to go to the nations, to risk. And yet we do the same thing as our forebears, don't we? We begin to listen to the snake. The snake who says, well, did God actually say you needed to do this? Surely not you. I mean, after all, you're kind of a timid person. You're nervous anyway. Talking to people about something so important seems really beyond you. I mean, I don't think God would want you to be uncomfortable. Surely God wouldn't want you to be embarrassed. And we buy it. 
hook, line, and sinker. We just need to do what we're told. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. The one who holds your life right now in his hands, he is the king over time and space. And that king doesn't grovel for your attention. He's not going to beg for you to identify him as king. Because you will at some point. But the most amazing thing about God is that he extends to you, even this morning, an invitation, mercy. A treaty. If you will submit to him on his terms, he will have mercy. It's almost like you can almost picture it. A massive army has gathered. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers have surrounded your position. You're all by yourself, alone in a foxhole. You have one rifle. You have one box of ammunition. And they have tanks. They have an air force. They have mortars. They have rockets. They have grenade launchers. They have a myriad of infantry. And all of them have converged on your position. They're ready to storm your position. It's inconceivable that you'll live through this if you find it. The only way that you make it out alive is if you surrender to the terms of the king. His terms are very simple. Lay down your weapons. Turn away from the allegiances that you once had and instead pledge your life and your heart and your passions to the king who will give you everything that you need. Oh, I wish that you would do that today. Maybe you're a believer here this morning and you're just complacent when it comes to your faith. It's easy to get into a rut when we just live every single day thinking, yeah, I know I need to be telling people about Christ. I know I need to be doing that, and I'm going to do it tomorrow. And the old adage is really true. Tomorrow really never does come. You always plan to do something, but if you don't do it today, it won't happen. And that's true of every spiritual discipline that we have. Everyone, every, every single command that God gives us, do not be complacent toward the change today. Maybe you're not complacent, you're just anxious. You're just anxious because when you look at your life, all of the things that are happening and, and the changes that you think ought to be happening, they're not happening fast enough. And so you work and you work and you work and you work and you begin to hear the words of the enemy and he says something like this, no matter what you do, it'll never be enough. Or he attacks you from the opposite side and he says, just keep on. Keep working and working and working. Eventually you'll get there. It's the same deceptive coin as two sides. Give your anxiety to the Lord. He loves you perfectly as you are. He loves you perfectly right now. He will never love you anymore. Because His love doesn't change. So it doesn't matter how many scriptures you memorize this year. It doesn't matter how many services that you come to. It doesn't matter how humble you try to make yourself. God's love for you doesn't change based upon your merit and your work. He loves you. Rest in Him. Rest in Him and have no fear. Friends, we are called to endure to the end. 
We're called to see Jesus rightly, and we are called to just do what he's told us to do. So the question this morning is very simple. How are you going to respond to this Jesus? Will you look to him for deliverance from the stranglehold of death and brokenness in your life? Will you look to him for the strength to endure tribulation and suffering? Will you you look to him for courage to do the things that he's already commanded you to do? Well, friends, let our answer not be fear and hesitation. But let our answer be yes. Yes. Let's pray. Father, won't you help us today as we we think about these words as we think about what it is that you've called us to do in Christ. God, help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to see Jesus for who he is, for how he is, so that we might truly endure to the end and do the things that you've commanded us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.